we need the Lord. God's word says in John 1, 10 through 13, he was in the world and the world came into being through him and yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not accept him. But as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just sang the words that we need you. And oh, how we need you. You are our one defense. You are our righteousness for those that are in Christ, your children. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit may move through my words to lift high your son so that we may glorify you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And it's in his matchless, precious name that we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Thank you, Jeremy, for wearing the orange tie to match mine today. (laughs) We will be color-coding henceforth. The first slide that you're going to see, and I promised you I don't usually use slides, but here we go, two weeks in a row. Don't get used to it. Last week, we learned about the herald, John the Baptist. You remember? The light, the herald, the witness that pointed forward to Christ Jesus. For those that were here and online, you'll remember this image, hopefully. This image is beside the pulpit of Martin Luther where he preached, painted by Lucas Crandall, the elder, or Cranach, the elder. And in there, there's four paintings, but what I wanted you to focus on was the one in the bottom, which is going to come up next. And The premise behind this is this is the hermeneutic of Martin Luther. And hermeneutics is a fancy term for how he interprets the Bible, proclaims the Bible, and heralds the Bible. And on his one hand, you'll notice the painting has Luther pointing to the cross. His hand is on the Bible and his other hand is pointing to Jesus here. And the people that are looking, are looking towards not Martin Luther, but towards Christ crucified. Now, many people around the world have crucifixes that have Christ like this, but we do not. And the reason that we do not is because Christ did not remain in the grave. And therefore... As you'll see on the next slide, Martin Luther died, as you will, and as I will, if the Lord tarries. And what is on his tombstone is this. Here is the buried, here is buried the body of the doctor of sacred theology. Wow. Boy, do I want that on my tombstone. (laughs) Martin Luther, who died in the year of Christ, 1546. On February the 18th in his hometown of 
Eiselbin. After having lived for 63 years, two months and 10 days, they didn't put the hours. Martin Luther lived and he died. You will live and die. I will live and die. There is but one who died, rose again, and did not die again. Catch my words. Very important. The next slide is the hope that we have and the easiest way to quash Christianity, the followers of Jesus, would have been to produce the body of Christ. But the reason why Christianity started with a flicker, became a flame, and is now a fire, and is now around the world and growing at unprecedented is because Christ lives and Christ will come again. And that is the hope that we have within us. John the Baptist was a man on a mission. He was on a divine mission. He understood who he was and who he was not. John the Baptist was not the I am. Do you remember what happened further in the book of John when Jeremy in two weeks from now is going to be preaching on this? And I'm sorry to steal a little of your thunder. Thank you for wearing your tie. Um, they, they tried to pin him down. Well, who are you? Who are you? Are you him? Are you him? Are you him? And what did he keep saying? I am not. See, he understood his identity. The three points last week had started with the herald and then the preacher and then the humility. And John the Baptist knew who he was not, but he knew who was the I am. And he pointed people to him and the followers that started to come to him. Do you remember this? He had great crowds gathering, listening. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God. And he pointed people to him and told them to follow Christ. I must decrease, he must increase. He had proper perspective. For note takers, I, I created an alliteration, so humor me and take this down. Okay, this took a lot of work. I was at an ACBC conference for three days this week and loved every minute of it. But that meant that I didn't get sermon prep till Thursday. So the fact that I have an alliteration for you, be, be happy with this one. All right, here we go. Proper perspective provides proper praise. Proper perspective provides proper praise. I'm not done. Comma. So proper perspective provides proper praise. Comma. Proper Adoration, comma, and proper humility. Proper perspective provides proper praise, proper adoration, and proper humility. John the Baptist knew that his influence was not about who he was. He had proper perspective. Martin Luther was a sinful man. He was a powerful preacher. He was a gifted scholar. He was a brilliant doctor. But in the end, he was a man. John the Baptist was an exceptional preacher. 
He was a tremendous herald, but in the end, he was just a man. The I am is God, man. This morning's sermon has one main idea, and here it is. The children of God are born of God. The children of God are born of God by belief in the Son of God. Let me repeat it. The children of God are born of God by belief in the Son of God. Now, for those that are younger in the audience, I forgot to say this last week. There are little, well, I don't know where it is. It's probably somewhere buried in my notes. There are sheets outside that you can take notes on and you can draw pictures on the back. And I would encourage you, if you are so inclined, the adults, please don't be drawing the pictures. So don't be stealing the crayons. But I love it when people are in God's word, especially young minds in God's word and learning God's word and consuming God's word. One main idea, the children of God are born of God by belief in the Son of God. One idea, three points. Here's the three points. Actually, I'm only going to give you one. And then I'm going to tell you two and three later. But here's number one. Knowing Jesus' identity, verse 10. Before we dive into there, I have one more thing to hang on to, which is this. Firm belief is intertwined with firm knowledge. Firm belief is intertwined with firm knowledge. Let's go to God's word. Verse 10. John 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Go back. Let's look to verse 1. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3. This is what it reminisces towards. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. So what are the all things in verse 3? And what is the difference between verse 3 and verse 10? That's the critical part. In verse 10, if we were doing a hermeneutic study, we will notice that three times the word world appears. Look down. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Keep that in the back of your minds. So the question that I have for you and for me that I wrestled with in preparing to preach for you today was, why did the world not know him or recognize him? Have you ever thought of that question? We read it, but have you ever thought why? Why is it that the world did not know or recognize Jesus? Jeremy just read to you from Genesis 3, and I'm going to zone in on three parts, and this is the answer to the why. The reason why that they did not recognize him then and do not attest to him now is because of sin. Genesis 3, verse 4 The serpent said to the woman, you certainly will not die. 
For God knows on the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will become like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took some of the fruit and ate it. And also she gave to her husband with her. Let me stop at the with her. During the counseling conference this week for biblical counselors, the final preacher stopped and he said, did you catch the words with her? Have you ever thought, oh, Eve was the problem? If it wasn't for Eve, tempting now Adam with this fruit, it's all about Eve. Wrong. Catch the two words with her. Have you ever noticed them before? What does that mean? Adam was with Eve when she was tempted and did nothing to stop Eve, period. And therefore, God holds him accountable. Man and woman are accountable. In fact, he holds perhaps even more accountability. Why? Because he was supposed to protect and cover and care for her. He was with her. And he ate. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. A different preacher this week said, and boy, was it powerful when he did. Like if you're going to cover yourself with something, fig leaves is not going to work. (laughs) Did you ever think of that? The moment that you kill the leaf and cover the body, what happens to the leaf? It dies. And so you're going to have to replace it again and again and again and again and again. And it's always going to be needed to cover the shame and the guilt. And so what did God do? God in his mercy, God in his grace, kills, covers, so that there is a temporal covering pointing forward, foreshadowing towards Behold the lamb. Once Adam and Eve disobeyed the Lord, their eyes were indeed opened. See, Satan wasn't wrong what he said. Your eyes will be opened. Careful what you ask for. Careful what you wish for. But his deception was subtle. Dale Johnson, the executive director of the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, wisely said in his opening address this week, listen to his words. Genesis 3-7 is a paradigm which we see man in his sin, mankind groping, trying to cover their guilt and their shame and the folly of man's remedies. Whatever we determine the issue it is, it narrows the scope of the treatment. What we believe to be the problem narrows our focus in what we think will be the remedy. And catch this. Human problems, he continues, reduced to our natural eyes, minimize the problem in such a way that the solution is a limited application. It is far greater problem. The fig leaves will be needed again 
and again and again. Genesis 3, 8 to 11. The man and his wife hide themselves. The man was afraid. The man blames his wife for eating the fruit. And what does she do? She blames Satan. It's all their problem. It's because of them. Nobody takes accountability, right? But there's no mention that he tries to stop her or deter her. God has given them specific responsibilities. Their sin has blinded their eyes and shunned their responsibilities. And this is a picture of us as humanity now. Through the act of sinful disobedience, there, plural, intentional there, eyes were opened, but should I rather say their eyes were darkened. Darkness is obeying the subtle deception of the enemy. For note takers... That's the point. Darkness is obeying the subtle deception of the enemy. Adam and Eve challenged the goodness of God and they challenged the sufficiency of his word. Friends, if you want to hear God speak, don't trust the person that says, I have a word from the Lord. No, 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 you do. You have many words from the Lord. It's called the Bible. That's where God speaks. And when we allow to be subtly deceived, what we're doing is allowing God's word to be contorted and distorted. And therefore, we hold fast to his word. My first sermon to you as your new pastor was, we will hold fast to the inerrancy, the infallibility of God's word and the sufficiency of it. Those weren't just little words that I was throwing out at you. Those were important words that were going to ground everything that we have come from and everything that we will go to. John 1.10. Please, Chris, get to the text, right? Okay, here we go. John 1.10. I'd like to draw your attention to three words. And here they are. World is the first. Actually, no, word will be the second. Him, he is the first. Apologies. In the original Greek, the pronoun in it here, so go to verse 10, he was in the world. In the original Greek, the first pronoun is missing. It's implied. Now you might say, who cares? Critically important. Because you have to take the entire context of the Bible and understand who is the he and who is the him. So you notice Jesus' name is not popping up. It's not saying Jesus was in the world and Jesus, Jesus was with God, right? You have, to get, you have to hang in there. And a master storyteller, he is. Small, pithy, short sentences, repetitive, repetitive And he's like, who is the he? Who is the him? We know who it is. The remainder of the sentence has two more mentions of him. But we learn who the he and the him is in 29 and 30 in John 1. The next day, referencing John the Baptist, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the sacrificial 
lamb. It goes right back to Genesis 3. And what John has, do, has done in this brilliantly through the divine inspiration of the Spirit is to say the second person of the Trinity was always the solution since mankind has turned from God, tried in the temporal fig leaf solution, but God provides the means and the method. And so, behold, the Lamb. He, this is he in whom I have said, after me as a man who has proven to be superior. Because, why? He existed before me. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him. Verse 10, John 1. And yet the world did not know him. Second word study we're going to do is on world. World is mentioned three times. In Greek, world is translated. Uh, let's see the Greek scholars. Cosmos. Sounds pretty similar to the English word, cosmos. Right? You've heard that term before. The English rendering is similar, but the context is different than verse 3. So what is happening, you'll see how John has done this. He starts with world, and I want you to think of this like an hourglass. So he says, first, Jesus created all things. And then as the world comes in, you're going to start to see that there's a, a lack of acceptance, a rejection. And so what's happening is he's narrowing the scope. It's the same underlying Greek word, but he's changing the context. Do trees reject Jesus? Do stars reject Jesus? No. So what's happened? He's narrowing the scope of the context of the world, the word world. Look to verse 10 again. He was in the world... And the world came into being through him. Stop. That's all of creation. But now the context of world shifts. And yet the world did not know him. The last world is in reference to mankind. And so what it's saying here is because of the darkness of Genesis 3, it's not that the gecko didn't know Jesus. It's that mankind did not understand who was standing in front of them. Their eyes were darkened because of sin. And that is why, as we see in the last, in the critical part is the last word in the word study. No. At the end of verse K-N-O-W, not N-O. At the end of verse 10, the word no. He was in the world and the world came into being through him. And yet the world did not know him. Know could also be translated acknowledge. Let me read to you this. The apostle emphasizes his point by a triple reference to the world. He was in the world and the world came into being through him. And yet the world did not know him. With each step, the scandal of the rejection of Jesus is intensified. Verse 10 transitions from coming into the world, and he was in the world, which attested to by thousands of witnesses. Have you ever thought of that? There are thousands that witnessed Jesus coming into the world, his ministry, his death, and multitudes witnessed his resurrection. 
Thousands saw his miracles, heard his words. And John intensifies the argument by stating that not only did they see him, but the very world was created by him. Drawing back to Genesis 1 and John 1, 3. And this is echoed by Paul later in the Bible in two places. Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Do you remember these words? All things were created by him. And Hebrews 1, 2, in the last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through he also made the world. John, in the first part of verse 10, changes the meaning. The created beings did not know who was there in front of him. The world, in this case, implies mankind. It's reminiscent to Job 12, verse 25. Listen to the words here. They grope in the darkness with no light. A critical point for us today is that we need to determine if you know of Jesus or do you know Jesus? Let me zone in on two groups of people. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I'm going to speak to the children of God first. Let us examine ourselves. We need to be aware of the sinfulness of sin, and we need the book for Scripture convicts. To know God, we need to know his word, for that is where he and his instructions are revealed within. So, first exhortation. Are we too busy for God? Do our lives look like we prioritize God or the things of this world? Do our minds, are we consumed with how the Dodgers are doing? See, I'm trying to become more LA-ish, right? (laughs) So I was going to say Maple Leafs, but none of you would have got it, except three. So... Are you more consumed with that and maybe postseason versus what's happening in your study of God's word? Does what fill our mouths outside of this room, outside of the church, resonate with the things of the world or the things of heaven? Are we consumed by God for what we consume the mouth will overflow. What we put in will come out. If you are digesting more of God's word, and what, how do I do this? Let me give you some practical ways I do this. I drive to church. Guess what I do? Podcast. A lot. I want to hear godly people telling me truths about God's word. I have an audio Bible app. I can press on my phone, listen to chapter one seven times in a row. Guess what I'm doing? I'm memorizing God's word while I'm brushing my teeth. See, what we consume will overflow in our speech and overflow in our hearts from the heart, the mouth overfloweth. 
So are we consuming God's word? There are no excuses for not doing it. There really are not. So the question I challenge each of us is, is that central to the start of your day? Do you do family worship? Five years ago, we had never done it, ever. And I sat in a class with Dr. Whitney, and he said, uh, who does family worship here? I didn't even know what it meant. Well, we don't always do it well, but we try to do it a lot now. And why is that important? Because what I'm teaching my family at the end of each day, or hopefully at the beginning of each day if I get better at it, is this is central to our home. Reading God's word, praying God's word. If I had a better voice, maybe singing, right? Because I want my daughter, when she grows up, to know that was central to my father. Because what I say matters. And when I speak God's word to her and pray God's word to her, we had a sleepover last night at our house, which was wonderful. So I want to read God's word, even there, even if it's just three verses and a quick prayer, because it matters. And if I say it matters and I don't do it, it doesn't matter. I have to do it. Continue, abide, and remain. If you continue in my word, these are the children of God. First John, or John 8, 31 through 32. Children of God, we are to be reflective, growing in likeness of true light, Jesus Christ. We know that our actions do not earn our salvation, but they're evidence of our salvation. Believers, we are to walk by faith, not by sight. 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Hebrews 11, 1. Faith is the assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. As children of light, may we evidence our faith in loving proclamation of Jesus to the world around us. That's my heart for this church. If we're consumed about Christ, we'll speak about Christ. One of the things that encouraged me yesterday, Don's father is listening to a sermon. That's so encouraging. I'm so encouraged by that. I want family around the world, your families that aren't here, share the messages, share God's word to them. I do it as well to my family. We want them to know they are loved. And how do we know that they are loved? It's not just saying our words. It's giving them God's word and the exhortation of it because we love them. As children of life and of light, we need to cling to the rock. So have you ever taken a rock and thrown it at a pond? Or is it just me? Right? There's two types of people I'm convinced. Those that really know how to skim stones and those that pretend they know how to skim stones. And what happens, it becomes like a kerplunk, right? You've seen those ones? And then they're like, oh, maybe it's a different rock. And they scour the beach. I have to have the perfect rock to skim the stones, right? But you throw it and it's still kerplunks, right? And then there's those that can just, I don't know, they can take any rock and it somehow skims across the surface. Jesus is described in the Bible as the rock. So let me read to you why. Like a rock that is thrown into a pond, 
which cannot help but evidence the ripples of influence. To catch the words there. So what do I mean? When you throw a rock and it lands in, there's a central point and the ripples that come out of that are discernible to the source. It's not multiple points rippling out. It's a central point rippling out. And when we have Jesus as our cornerstone, as our bedrock, and Jesus references rock a lot. Remember, he turns to Peter and says, you are rock in which I build my church. There's a firmness to this. Faith has a firmness to it. It's not nebulous. It's firm. Now, you might be, I've spoken a lot to children of God. You might be in this room and you don't know God as your Lord, as your Savior And you're not a child of God. And you might be thinking, if only I could see Jesus, if only I could have been there, witnessed his miracles, seen him die, and perhaps then I'd believe. Wrong. I don't think so. How do I know that to be true? Thousands of people walked with Jesus and denied Jesus. And the Bible says to us that we are better to believe by faith than by sight. Firmness is not what we see with our eyes. It's what we know with our hearts to be true. We have God's word. It's here. We have the full canon. We have the full story. So the question I have to you, we know what the purpose of John twenty thirty one. What's the purpose statement of the book of John? These things were written so that you would believe in Jesus Christ or Christ. Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. So do you believe? You can come to week, week by week by week and hear my words, but do you believe truly? Because if you do, praise the Lord. It has nothing to do with you. Don't take any credit. Don't think you're smarter than others that don't believe because you too once had darkened eyes. And the fact that the veil has lifted has nothing to do with your intelligence or what somebody said to you. It's entirely a gift from God. If you believe, repent, turn from your old ways and start living as Jesus, as your Lord and Savior. Ephesians 4 22 to 24, if there was one central thing that came through the three-day conference, it was this, put off and put on. Children of God, put off the old self, put on the new self, and live like Christ. Not perfectly, but progressively. If you do not believe in Jesus, what are you believing in? What are you placing your hope in? Here's a question. What is or are your functional God or gods? We all have gods, right? You know that. If you don't believe in Jesus as your God, you have a God. It just might be yourself. And respectfully, out of love, how's that working out? Seriously. Because at the end of the day, if our hope is in ourself, We will die like Martin Luther, like John the Baptist, and we will face judgment. 
And at that point, it's too late, period. The Bible tells us that. So put your hope where hope may be found. Friends, do not be blinded to the light. I pray that the Lord will open your eyes and use my feeble words for his glorious purpose. Verse 11. John 1.11 is the height and the scandal of the rejection. What can be more unreasonable, asked John Calvin, than this, than to draw water from running streams, listen to the words, and never think of the fountain from which that stream flows. Verse 11. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. There is some debate of the first reference of his own. So let me give you my clear answer. I don't know. Okay? But what the scholars have concluded that are brighter than I is that the first his own is likely in reference to a property or a territory. Meaning Jesus came to his own region or his own world. He's the creator therein. So the first, his own, has a possessiveness to potentially a property. But the second reference to his own is the one I want to zone in on. In Greek, not that anybody cares about this, but let me pretend like you do because I studied it, so I want to say it. Okay, thank you. There's at least two. All right. So the first, his own, is a neuter The second, his own, is not. It's a masculine with a definitive article. And what that means to all of us in English is this. The second, his own, has a possessiveness. He came to his own. And the second one is a personal, his own. So we've gone from the world to humanity In this case, he's gone into the land, the world, to his people, the Jews. These were the people that were supposed to be waiting for him, that were supposed to recognize him, that were supposed to want him to be there. He came to his own, but his own rejected him. I'm going to read to you from a few places in Scripture why this shouldn't be that much of a surprise. I have nourished and brought up children. And I'll read you the verses at the end. Two of these come from Isaiah. One comes from Jeremiah. And they have rebelled against me. And the ox knows not its owner. And the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not consider. Isaiah 1, 2 through 4, 65, 2 through 3. Jeremiah Seven twenty-five to 26. This did not surprise the Lord. It saddened him, but it did not surprise him. He came to his own, but his own people did not receive him. John here refers to the Jewish nation as a whole. And by the way, is our hearts not breaking for what's happening around the world? but his own people did not receive him. 
And many Jews believed in Jesus. The majority did not. But this is especially tragic given that salvation was to come to the one born to the Jewish race. Carson, in his commentary on John, says this. Listen. Again and again, under the old covenant, the prophets described the recalcitrance of the people of God all day long. They've held out their hands to, he's held out their hands to an obstinate people who walk in the ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, Isaiah 65, 2 through 3. And day after day after day, I sent my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen. They did not pay attention. They were stiff-necked. More evil than their forefathers, Hebrews 7, 25 through 26. This is the theme that John is picking up and develops in his own way. Now, Jeremy and I were speaking yesterday, and I said to him, there's often a misunderstanding of the Bible, and I want to clarify something for you to help you in your understanding of God's word. Often the comment I hear from people is that the God of the Old Testament is an angry God, That's a God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament, he's the loving God. This is the good, happy. It's the same God. Father, Son, Spirit from cover to cover. The Bible is a love story. God is love. 1 John 4, 8. This love finds its ultimate expression in the cross of Christ. The most famous verse in the entire Bible, probably one you were, getting, you were taught to memorize at a young age. For God so loved the world that he gave, catch it? He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God's love did not, listen to these words, God's love did not first appear when Christ came to earth to take on flesh where we're going to get to next week, Lord willing. No, that's where God's love climaxed. God's love did not first appear when Christ came to earth to take on flesh, to live, to die in the horrendous cross, but that's where God's love climaxed. From the beginning of the Bible, Genesis, I hope you enjoy the reading of Genesis with this. The first time that we introduced a long swat or a bigger, I wasn't sure how you were going to react, to be honest with you. But you know what? If you don't want to hear God's word, then what do you want to hear? I remember watching a preacher read Psalm 119. The entire Psalm 119 took 12 and a half minutes. And the following day the, at this conference, He said, you know, if you would have sat down right at the end of that, that was a great sermon. (laughs) See, we all thought, all of us pastors and people that do this, so to speak, week in, week out, all thought there's no way he's going to read all the verses from Psalm 119. Isn't that sad that we're not used to hearing God's word read the way it once was, which was people wanted not a 90 minute, but they wanted 90 minutes just of God's word. I don't apologize for large swaths of God's word. I want to train us in that so that we want to consume it more out of love. God's love did not first appear when Christ came to the earth to take on flesh. It climaxed 
at the cross and the resurrection. From the beginning of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, God's great love is displayed on multiple levels, countless glorious ways. God's love, in fact, was the driving force that set the stage for creation. In eternity past, I want you to, if you pay attention to nothing else, I want you to pay real close attention to what I'm going to say next. In eternity past, with the perfect fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. Did you catch that? The perfect fellowship of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. God the Father purposed as a loved gift to his Son to redeem a people who would honor and glorify his Son. That's why you're created. It has nothing to do with you or me. We are created for God's glory as a gift for his son. Did you catch that? We're not, this was not something that caught him by surprise. There was no plan B. This was always a redemption plan initiated by God and requires belief in the son of God. The children of God are born of God by belief in the Son of God. Third point, belief in the Son of God. Now, some of you might be saying, and rightly so, Chris, you said there's three points. I got one, I got three, but I didn't get two. And therefore, I'm going to say it. It's the rejection of Jesus was point two. It's probably complicit. It's implicit to your notes, but let me make sure it's explicit in my outline. Rejection of Jesus, point two. Now we're on three. Belief in Jesus, verses 12 and 13. If we stopped in verses 10 and 11, the outcome would be grim. But thank the Lord for verses 12 and 13. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of a man, but of God. Verse 12 could also be rewritten and remain accurate. He gave the right to become as many as believed to them. So look at verse 12. So what do I mean by that? But as many as received him, you could insert the word believed. Belief and reception have the underlying same word in the original language. And we're going to know that's true because he clarifies. To them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those, and here it is, who believe in his name. He sandwiched this belief, reception, but what's in the middle of it is critical. He gave the right. It's not our right. He gives it to us. It's a love gift. This love is now extended by God from the original covenantal language, but now the term moves from his people to these people, to them. And what you see from an hourglass is you see Jesus coming into here, coming into the world, his people rejecting and the gift of love, the gift of salvation is now extending out to Jew and to Gentile, which by the way is most of us in this room. 
and online. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So this is critical that we catch what's happening. In the book of John, the believer is described as becoming a child of God or children, not of natural descent, not of a human decision or a will, but born of God. Those who believe in the name of Jesus are identical to those that are born of God. Ephesians 2.8 confirms that faith is not one's doing, but an act of God. This is, a, is this knowledge, by the way. Do you remember Martin Luther, if you go back to him? He was tormented. He used to go confessionally and literally confess his sins and then walk back and then realize after confessing his sins for an hour that he's like, oh, I forgot one. And he came all the way back and you can just imagine the poor person that had to get Martin Luther, right? Be like, oh, please, anybody but him. I'm going to be here for an hour and then he's going to walk away. He's going to come straight back and confess more. It tormented him that he was a sinner. Until one day, by reading God's word, and particularly understanding Ephesians 2, 8 through 9, he realized, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This was unbelievably freeing for Luther, and I pray it is for you. There's nothing that you can do that will earn you a place with God. It's a gift from God. Therefore, all praise goes to God. But children of God are to look like the Son of God progressively. Affection of God without action toward him has been said to be like Rachel in the Bible. Beautiful, but barren. In other words, if we say we love God and we don't live like we love God, we don't love God. Do you catch that? Reception and belief are like bookends sandwiched with the new identity of Christ followers. Meaning, those who believe and receive Jesus, these ones, they are given, not earned, but gifted the right or authority to become children of God. This new God-given right is extending now beyond the Jewish people to the Jew and the Gentile who believe in his name. He gave the right to become children of God. Puritan John Lightfoot adds, the light of the law shone originally on the Jews, but this light has now spread itself wider even over all the world, to which we need to pause this morning and this week and praise God for his beautiful gift of election, his gift. The Bible is a love story. I'd like you to talk like that. Someone says to you, tell me about the Bible. It's a love story. It's a love story from cover to cover. Most beautiful love story that's ever existed. The creation account repeatedly features this phrase, and God saw that it was good. And then he creates mankind, and he says it's not good, but very good. Out of his matchless love, he creates mankind as the capstone of his creation. That love story theme continues throughout all of scripture. Old Testament, listen to these. The earth is full of God's loving kindness. Psalm 119 verse 64. 
The Lord is good to all. His mercies are over all his works. Psalm 145, verse 9. He did not leave himself without witness. And all that he did and gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Acts 14, 17. But there was a greater purpose behind God's creative work. God's creative work was not the main attraction. But in fact, God created the world to become a stage for his redemptive plan. Have you ever thought of that? Why did God create the world? Full stop. For those in seminary, maybe those at master's, why did God create the world? We know why God, what is the purpose of man? It's to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Westminster Catechism, first question. But why did God create the world? God created the world to be a main attraction, or a stage, excuse me, for the main attraction of his redemptive plan that would take place, the location where his love would be put on full display, which is through Christ. Even the corrupting, blinding light of sin in God's creation is integral. Think of that. The blinding corruption of sin is integral to the display of his love. For his redeeming love would have remained hidden without sinners to redeem. It's all about Christ. So Christians, children of God, do you love God? And do we thank him for what he's done? The Bible is clear for his overwhelming love for us. Let me just rattle off some scriptures. John 3, 16, Ephesians 2, 4, 5, Romans 5, 8, 1 John 3, 1, and 1 John 4, 19. The Bible is clear of his love for us, manifested, made known through the life, the death, the resurrection of his son, so that through faith in his son, we may have eternal life. Three questions for you as we close. But are we clear for our overwhelming love for him? Number one. Is that love evidenced in my heart and in our hearts? And does that love overflow from our mouths? When we leave the room this morning, I mentioned a while ago in one sermon, we carry an aroma. Is that aroma when we leave the room for the love of our Savior or the love of ourself? Is the aroma reflective of our old selves or reflective of children of God? The great Puritan, one more quote from John Owen says, we are never, never nearer than Christ when, when we find ourselves lost in the holy amazement at his unspeakable love. So my exhortation for you this week is this. Let's dwell and meditate on this unspeakable love today and this week with joyous excitement for the glory of God alone. It's all about God a final quote's going to come up here from Martin Lloyd-Jones for you to see. A recognition of his son's divinity, an acceptance of him by faith, which is firstly enabled by grace alone, an awareness of your renewed identity as a child of God. 
So the main idea, the big idea was this. Let us remember we are in Christ for those of us are indeed children of God, born of God by belief in the Son of God. Luther, or uh, Lloyd-Jones says this, the Son of God, and I love the picture. I don't know if it's his granddaughter who's cuddling beside him. The Son of God became man that children of men might become children of God. As children of God, we are to live out our faith, bearing witness, heralding about our Lord, the light, and the life. The incarnate son who took on flesh, the son of God who lived to die in our place so that we can believe in him, die to ourselves, and live for God in his glory alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is to start a prayer by saying, Father, There's nothing that I deserve to call you Father. There's nothing that any of us deserve or are right to call you Father, but you allow us to, through faith in your Son, and we just want to pause and praise you for that. For those of us that are children of God, move us this morning to become more like your Son. Help us to be consumed by you and your word and may that overflow in our lives, our hearts, our speech. May we talk about that we love and may it be you firstly. For those that are not children of God, I pray that you use even this sermon to effect and be part of your perfect will and plan. I pray you that you would save many. I pray that we would be bold in sharing our sermons, your word to the lost and dying world. And may you be the God of our hearts and our homes this week and always for your glory and for your praise alone and to your son's matchless name.